Section 25 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.K. Edison, New Jersey. Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 25. Abraham Lincoln. Part 2. At the grove there was much handshaking and visiting and asking after the folks and for the news. Several soldiers were present, among them a man who lived near us called Little Ramsey. Three one-armed men were there, and a man named Al Sweetser who had only one leg. These men were blue and were seated on the big platform that was all draped with flags. Plank seats were arranged, and every plank held its quota. Just outside the seats, hundreds of men stood, and beyond these were wagons filled with people. Every tree in the woods seemed to have a horse tied to it, and the trees over the speaker's platform were black with men and boys. I never knew before that there were so many horses and people in the world. When the speaking began, the people cheered, and then they became very quiet, and only the occasional squealing and stamping of the horses could be heard. Our preacher spoke first, and then the lawyer from Bloomington, and then came the great man from Peoria. The people cheered more than ever when he stood up, and kept hurrying so long I thought they were not going to let him speak at all. At last they quieted down, and the speaker began. His first sentence contained a reference to Abe Lincoln. The people applauded, and someone proposed three cheers for honest old Abe. Everybody stood up and cheered, and I, perched on my father's shoulder, cheered too and beneath the legend, warranted fifty pounds, my heart beat proudly. Silence came at last, a silence filled only by the neighing and stamping of horses and the rapping of a woodpecker in a tall tree. Every ear was strained to catch the orator's first words. The speaker was just about to begin. He raised one hand, but ere his lips moved, a hoarse guttural shout echoed through the woods. Hurrah for Jeff Davis! "'Kill that man!' rang a sharp, clear voice in instant answer. A rumble like an awful groan came from the vast crowd. My father was standing on a seat, and I had climbed to his shoulder. The crowd surged like a monster animal toward a tall man standing alone in a wagon. He swung a black snake whip around him, and the lash fell savagely on two grey horses. At a lunch, the horses, the wagon, and the tall man had cleared the crowd, knocking down several people in their flight. One man clung to the tailboard, the whip wound with a hiss and a crack across his face, and he fell stunned in the roadway. A clear space of full three hundred feet now separated the man in the wagon from the great throng, which, with ten thousand hands, seemed ready to tear him from limb to limb. Revolver shots rang out, women screamed, and trampled children cried for help. Above it all was the roar of the mob. The orator, in vain pantomime, implored order. I saw little Ramsey drop off the limb of a tree, astride of a horse that was tied beneath, then lean over, and with one stroke of a knife, sever the halter. At the same time, fifty other men seemed to have done the same thing, for flying horses shot out from different parts of the woods, all on the instant. The man in the wagon was half a mile away now, still standing erect. The grey horses were running low, with noses and tails outstretched. The spread-out riders closed in a mass and followed at terrific speed. 
The crowd behind seemed to grow silent. We heard the patter-patter of barefoot horses ascending the long, low hill. One rider on a sorrel horse fell behind. He drew his horse to one side, and sitting over with one foot in the long stirrup, plied the sorrel across the flank with a big, white felt hat. The horse responded and crept around to the front of the flying mass. The wagon had disappeared over a gentle rise of ground, and then we lost the horseman too. Still we watched, and two miles across the prairie we got a glimpse of running horses in a cloud of dust, and into another valley they settled, and then we lost them for good. The speaking began again, and went on amid applause and tears, with laughter set between. I do not remember what was said, but after the speaking, as we made our way homeward, we met little Ramsey and the young man who rode the sorrel horse. They told us that they had caught the copperhead after a ten-mile chase, and that he was badly hurt, for the wagon had upset and the fellow was beneath it. Ramsay asked my father to go at once to see what could be done for him. The man, however, was quite dead when my father reached him. There was a purple mark around his neck, and the opinion seemed to be that he had got tangled up in the harness or something. The wartime monks went dragging by, and the burden of gloom in the air seemed to lift for when the Chicago Tribune was read each evening in the post office, it told of victories on land and sea. Yet it was a joy not untinged with black, for in the church, across from a house, funerals had been held for farmer boys who had died in prison pens and been buried in Georgia trenches. One youth there was, I remember, who had stopped to get a drink at a pump and squirted a mouthful of water over me because I was handy. One night the postmaster was reading aloud the names of the killed at Gettysburg, and he ran right on to the name of this boy. The boy's father sat there on a nail keg, chewing a straw. The postmaster tried to shuffle over the name and on to the next. Hi, wow, what's that you said? Killed in honourable battle, Snyder Hiram, said the postmaster with a forced calmness. The boy's father stood up with a jerk, then he sat down. Then he stood up again and staggered his way to the door and fumbled for the latch like a blind man. God help him. He's gone to tell the old woman, said the postmaster as he blew his nose on a red handkerchief. The preacher preached a funeral sermon for the boy, and on the little pyramid that marked the family lot in the burying ground, they carved the words, quote, Killed in honorable battle, Hiram Snyder, aged 19, end quote. Not long after, strange yellow-bearded men in faded blue began to arrive. Great welcomes were given them, and at the regular Wednesday evening prayer meeting, thanksgivings were poured out for their safe return, with names of company and regiment duly mentioned for the Lord's better identification. Bees were held for some of these returned farmers, where twenty teams and fifty men, old and young, did a season's farm work in a day and split enough wood for a year. At such times, the women would bring big baskets of provisions, and long tables would be set, and there were very jolly times, with cracking of many jokes that were veterans, and the day would end with pitching horseshoes, and at last with singing Old Lang Scene. It was at one such gathering that a ghost appeared, a lank, saffron ghost, ragged as a scarecrow, wearing a foolish smile and the cape of a cavalryman's overcoat, with no coat beneath it. The apparition was a youth of about twenty, with a downy beard all over his face, and countenance well mellowed with cold suit, 
as though he had ridden several days on top of a freight car that was near the engine. This ghost was Hiram Snyder. All forgave him the shock of surprise he caused us, all except the minister who had preached his funeral sermon. Years after, I heard this minister remark in a solemn, grieved tone, quote, Hiram Snyder is a man who cannot be relied on, end quote. As the years pass, the miracle of the seasons means less to us. But what country boy can forget the turning of the leaves from green to gold and the watchings and waitings for the first hard frost that ushers in the nutting season? And then the first fall of snow, with its promise of skates and sleds and tracks of rabbits and mayhap bears and strange animals that only come out at night and that no human eye has ever seen? Beautiful are the seasons, and glad I am that I have not yet quite lost my love for each. But now they parade past with a curious swiftness. They look at me out of wistful eyes, and sometimes one calls to me as she goes by and asks, Why have you done so little since I saw you last? And I can only answer, I was thinking of you. I do not need another incarnation to live my life over again. I can do that now, and the resurrection of the past through memory that sees through closed eyes is just as satisfactory as the thing itself. Were we talking of the seasons? Very well, dearie, the seasons it shall be. They are all charming, but if I were to wed any, it would be spring. How well I remember the gentle perfume of her comings and her warm, languid breath. There was a time when I would go out of the house some morning, and the snow would be melting, and spring would kiss my cheek, and then I would be all aglow with joy, and would burst into the house and cry, Spring is here! Spring is here! For you know, we always have to divide our joy with someone. One can bear grief, but it takes two to be glad. And then my mother would smile and say, Yes, my son, but do not wake the baby. Then I would go out and watch the snow turn to water, and run down the road in little rivulets to the creek that would swell until it became a regular Mississippi, so that when we waded the horse across, the water would come to the saddle girth. Then once I remember the bridge was washed away, and all the teams had to go round and through the water, and some used to get stuck in the mud on the other bank. It was great fun. The first, quote, spring beauties, end quote, bloomed very early in that year. Violets came out on the south side of rotting logs, and cowslips blossomed in the slough, as they never had done before. Over on the knoll, prairie chickens strutted pompously and proudly drummed. The war was over. Lincoln had won, and the country was safe. The jubilee was infectious, and the neighbors who used to come and visit us would tell of the men and boys who would soon be back. The war was over. My father and mother talked of it across the table, and the men talked of it at the store, and earth, sky, and water called to each other in glad relief. The war is over. But there came a morning when my father walked up from the railroad station very fast and looking very serious. He pushed right past me as I sat in the doorway. I followed him into the kitchen where my mother was washing dishes and heard him say, They have killed Lincoln, and then he burst into tears. I had never before seen my father shed tears. In fact, I had never seen a man cry. There is something terrible in the grief of a man. Soon the church bell across the road began to toll. It tolled all that day. Three men, I can give you the names, rang the bell all day long, tolling, slowly tolling, tolling until night came and the stars came out. 
I thought it a little curious that the stars should come out, for Lincoln was dead. But they did, for I saw them as I trotted by my father's side down to the post office. There was a great crowd of men there, at the long line of peel hickory hatching poles were dozens of saddle horses. The farmers had come for miles to get details of the news. On the long counters that ran down each side of the store, men were seated, swinging the feet, and listening intently to someone who was reading aloud from a newspaper. We worked our way past the men who were standing about, and with several of these my father shook hands solemnly. Leaning against the wall near the window was a big, red-faced man, whom I knew as a copperhead. He had been drinking, evidently, for he was making boozy efforts to stand very straight. There were only heard a subdued buzz of whispers and the monotonous voice of the reader as he stood there in the centre, his newspaper in one hand and a lighted candle in the other. The red-faced man lurched two steps forward and in a loud voice said, Lincoln is dead, and I'm damn glad of it. Across the room I saw two men struggling with little Ramsey. Why they should struggle with him I could not imagine, but ere I could think the matter out, I saw him shake himself loose from the strong hands that sought to hold him. He sprang upon the counter, and in one hand I saw he held a scale weight. Just an instant he stood there, and then the weight shot straight at the red-faced man. The missile glanced on his shoulder and shot through the window. In another second the red-faced man plunged through the window, taking the entire sash with him. "'You'll have to pay for that window,' called the alarmed postmaster out into the night. The store was quickly emptied, and on following outside no trace of the red man could be found. The earth had swallowed both the man and the five-pound scale weight. After some minutes had passed in a vain search for the weight and the copperhead, we went back into the store, and the reading was continued. But the interruption had relieved the tension, and for the first time that day men in that post office joked and laughed. It even lifted from my heart the gloom that threatened to smother me, and I went home and told the story to my mother and sisters, and they too smiled, so closely akin are tears and smiles. The story of Lincoln's life had been ingrained into me long before I ever read a book, for the people who knew Lincoln and the people who knew the people that Lincoln knew were the people I knew. I visited at their houses and heard them tell what Lincoln had said when he sat at table where I then sat. I listened long to Lincoln's stories and, quote, and that reminds me, end quote, was often on the lips of those I loved. All the tales told by the faithful Herndon and the needlessly loyal Nicolay and Hay were current coin, and the rehearsal of the Lincoln-Douglas debate was commonplace. When our own poverty was mentioned, we compared it with the poverty that Lincoln had endured and felt rich. I slept in a garret where the winter's snow used to sift merrily through the slab shingles, but then I was covered with warm buffalo robes, and a loving mother tucked me in, and on my forehead imprinted a good-night kiss. But Lincoln, at the same age, had no mother, and lived in a hut that had neither windows, doors, nor floor, and a pile of leaves and straw in the corner was his bed. Our house had two rooms, but one winter the Lincoln home was only a shed enclosed on three sides. I knew of his being a clerk in a country store at the age of twenty, and that up to that time he had read but four books, of his running a flatboat, splitting rails, and pouring at night over a dog-eared law book, of his asking to sleep in the law office of Joshua Speed, 
and of Speed's giving him permission to move in, and of his going away after his, quote, worldly goods, end quote, and coming back in ten minutes carrying an old pair of saddlebags, which he threw in a corner, saying, Speed, I've moved. I knew of his twenty years of country law practice, when he was considered just about as good and no better than a dozen others on that circuit, and of his making a bad living during that time. Then I knew of his gradually awakening to the wrong of slavery, of the expansion of his mind, so that he began to incur the jealousy of rivals and the hatred of enemies, and of the prophetic feeling in that slow but sure-moving mind that, quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free, I knew of the debates with Douglas and the national attention they attracted, and of Judge Davis's remark, quote, Lincoln has more common sense than any other man in America, end quote. And then, chiefly through Judge Davis's influence, of his being nominated for president at the Chicago Convention, I knew of his election and the coming of the war and the long, hard fight when friends and foes beset, and none but he had the patience and the courage that could wait. And then I knew of his death, that death which then seemed a calamity, terrible in its awful blackness. But now the years have passed, and I comprehend somewhat of the paradox of things. And I know that this death was just what he might have prayed for. It was a fitting close for a life that had done a supreme and mighty work. His face foretold the end. Lincoln had no home ties. In that plain frame house without embellished yard or ornament, where I have been so often, there was no love that held him fast. In that house there was no library, but in the parlour, where six haircloth chairs and a slippery sofa to match stood guard, was a marble table on which were various gift books in blue and gilt. He only turned to that home when there was no other place to go. Politics, with its attendant travel and excitement, allowed him to forget the what-might-have-beens. Foolish bickering, silly pride, and stupid misunderstanding pushed him out upon the streets, and he sought to lose himself among the people. And to the people at length he gave his time, his talents, his love, his life. Fate took from him his home that the country might call him saviour, Dire tragedy was a fitting end, for only the souls who have suffered are well loved. Jealousy, disparagement, calumny have all made way, and North and South alike revere his name. The memory of his gentleness, his patience, his firm faith, and his great and loving heart are the priceless heritage of a united land. He had charity for all, and malice toward none. He gave affection, and affection is his reward. Honor and love are his. End of section 25. End of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard.